the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 14, Solo. Susan stood motionless on the hilltop, expecting to see Charon to come back into view. She imagined that he had walked away as a dramatic gesture. It was clear that he wasn't happy about leading her back to New Hampshire. Stomping away was a demonstration of his displeasure. She imagined him returning at any moment. That usual scowl on his face, saying something like, Only as far as the river, or only for a day. Charon didn't return. He really left? She struggled with giving up on his return. How could he do that? Would he really do that? When she felt certain that he wasn't going to return, she glanced at her surroundings. I'm alone. Alone in some godforsaken woods. She stared down at the bare stripe of snow that was I-91, now more visible as the dawn light grew. Alone in the woods with soldiers looking for me? A cold wave of realization tingled down her back. Ah, oh, jeez, she gasped. Standing on a hilltop was a bad thing to do. She hurried to follow Charon's trail over the top of the hill. His tracks were barely discernible in the dim light. Susan found some comfort in that. She intentionally took a parallel course, so as to not add compression to Charon's trail and make it more obvious. She still didn't like the idea of traveling farther west, and she wasn't trying to catch up to Charon and go to Ohio. The idea of having a tall hill between her and any potential pursuers seemed prudent. Through the trees to her right, she could see the buildings Charon mentioned. She paused to study her map. Martin used topo maps while explaining the daily patrols around his property. The seemingly random squiggly lines made more sense after she had walked the land. She rotated the paper until Map North aligned with her compasses north. Three little black squares denoted the buildings. They sat in wide yards within a flat valley. The snow on their driveways looked undisturbed. The houses might be abandoned. Perhaps there was food to be salvaged. Then again, they could be occupied by people hunkered down inside, like the family that took in Justine. Confronting an unknown number of people alone seemed too foolhardy. Crossing their yards would be faster going, but more exposed. Her snowshoe tracks would be easier to spot. The gentle ridge to the left offered wooded cover. Concealment appealed to her instinct. She traced her finger along the map, following the ridge north. It ended in an east-west valley. At the bottom of the valley ran a small twisting road and stream. The topo lines were close together on the north side. That reminded her of the bluff near the Utopian's camp. That was a steep slope. Susan could tell that the far side of the valley was going to be much steeper and taller. There was no time to plot out her entire course. She knew she had to keep moving. At the bottom of the valley, she would reassess her best next leg of her journey. Charon's trail led up the gentle rise to the west. She turned north trekking into untouched snow. Martin didn't leave me alone in the city, she grumbled. He went out of his way to make sure I was okay. 
She reached into her pocket to grip her jar of olives. He wouldn't leave me alone in the woods. The snow along the ridge wasn't particularly deep, but she preferred the minimal prints of her hemlock snowshoes to the more obvious boot prints. What sort of guy would just walk off and leave a woman alone in the woods? Her conscience reminded her that Martin offered to take her with him. Charon had offered that, too. When Martin offered, she had no idea where she wanted to be. She had nowhere else to go. This time, she did. It was hard to maintain a rage at Charon for abandoning her. She chose to stay. That was hardly his fault. Nonetheless, vague traces of betrayal lingered around the edges of her dour mood. She had never imagined herself traveling alone through unfamiliar country, pursued by soldiers. In all the other travels and adventures of her life, there had always been someone else along. Her father drove her to Worcester to move her into her college dorm room. Even when her father was lost and refused to ask for directions, he was still leading. Her role was always simply to ride quietly. Her various boyfriends, such as they were, suggested destinations and then did the driving. There was always someone else with the idea of where to go. Not this time. The only other time she traveled alone was when she moved to Boston after Mark kicked her out. She didn't like it then. She didn't like it now. But this time, it was her choice. She would have to make the best of it. She rolled the jar around within her pocket. Don't suppose you have any suggestions, she said softly. She could see that the woods were thinning up ahead. The northern side of the valley was becoming visible between the trees. She was near the bottom of the valley. The small road would be nearby. She slowed her pace, stopping periodically to listen. There was no sound beyond her own out-of-breath breathing. With the map oriented north again, she studied the steep sides of the valley. The map showed a somewhat less steep finger valley to her left. It led north. The left side of that spur formed the base of a very tall hill. A longer, less steep finger valley sat about a quarter mile to the east. It ran north and promised easier footing. The map also showed a small road running through it. Soldiers could easily follow roads. Ahead of her, she could see the steep sides of the bluff between the two finger valleys. The wind had scoured the snow down to the bare leaf litter in many areas. It looks like a lot of work to climb, she muttered to her jar. But I bet I could leave less trace on leaves. They'd probably expect me to take the easier route, too, so I won't. The road had tire ruts. After waiting, watching, and listening, she used her tarps to cross the smooth expanse of snow to the side of the road. Looks like big military tires, she thought. The coarsely ribbed tire marks did not have sharp edges. They were partially filled on one side with fine snow. These aren't new tracks, she reasoned. It snowed the day before yesterday. They drove on that. But there's been time for the wind to start filling them in. So it's been a couple of days since they were here. That could be good, or it could mean they'll be due back soon. That last prospect urged her to continue tarping across. Once inside the shelter of the woods, she snowshoed toward the steep slope. The sound of water babbling caught her attention, the stream denoted on the map. She was going to try to break through the ice to see if she could get some water, but the little stream hadn't completely frozen over. 
dark, rippling water showed through several holes in the snow-covered ice. There was no telling when she would encounter running water again, so she decided to refill her water bottles before climbing the slope. The fragile snow overhangs around each open water would leave obvious cave-in damage if she got close enough to reach into the stream. Evidence of her passing through. In order to refill her bottles but not damage the snow, Susan tied paracord to the neck of her bottle and hung it from a stick like a crude fishing pole. She had to use the stick itself to submerge the floating bottle. While she waited for her bottle to sink completely, she studied the steep valley side, looking for the best course. Her eyes traced a course up from one tree to the next. She noticed an odd patch of snow at the bottom of the slope. It was too long for a cluster of rocks. It was too twisted for a fallen tree trunk. With her filled water bottle stowed, she carefully stepped across one of the snowy ice bridges. As she approached the odd snow, she got an odd tingling sensation up the back of her neck. The snow had a human shape. She felt no humanitarian urge to rush up to the body and render aid. Whoever it was had been dead before the last snowstorm. The body lay sprawled in a sort of running pose, but laying on its belly. It was covered with two inches of snow. Susan glanced around. Were there more of them? Was this a deadly place to be? While scanning for any other dead bodies, she noticed a broken sapling on the slope. The fresh yellow wood of the break stood out against the dark brown leaf litter. Farther up, another sapling lay on the leaf litter, pointed down the slope. The two broken trees formed a line that pointed to the dead body. He must have fallen from up there somewhere. Peering higher, she saw a broken branch hanging by a strip of bark quite a ways up there. She sidestepped closer to the body. When she was still a few feet away, she squatted down for a better look. She was curious, but not keen to get too close. Dead bodies were still creepy. The snow-free band between the snow atop the body and that on the ground revealed his clothing, a hunter's pattern of camo. There was some scant comfort in that it was not military. But where did he come from? Were there others around? She figured that he must have been alone, since no one came looking for him. The prostrate figure was a stark reminder of the dangers of traveling alone. The head was turned away from her. That was fine. She didn't want to see any more lifeless eyes. Light brown hair hung in short matted points. In the spaces between the points of hair, Susan could see dark reddish brown. The head lay on a rock, as if it were a pillow. With a long stick, she poked at the snow on the rock, more dark reddish-brown, dried blood. She didn't know the man, whether he was a good man or bad, yet she found herself hoping that he died quickly rather than laying there, suffering, only to die of exposure. Alone in the woods is a terrible place to die, too. He must have lived around here. She noticed that he wore no backpack or other gear. The thought occurred to her that the dead man could have things in his pockets that she might be able to use. Her arms slowly reached out to roll over the body, but stopped. There was something pure about the snow layer on top of the man. It was like the sheet that people pull over dead bodies in the movies. No one, not even wild animals, had disturbed the snow. He was resting in peace. It seemed sacrilege to tamper with him now. He probably doesn't have anything that I don't already have. 
like another knife or matches. She knew she was making excuses for herself, but she was willing to play along. Besides, if I disturb the body, they'll know someone else was here. That argument sealed the deal. She would press on and leave the man undisturbed. Susan pulled herself up the slope, from tree to tree. Her goal was to avoid, as much as possible, slipping or stumbling in the bare leaf litter. Such obvious marks would be visible from farther away. Her plan necessitated a wandering zigzag course wherever the next tree was within reach. The lack of footmarks in the deep forest floor was well worth the effort. The steep slope would be one of those breaks in the trail that Sharon talked about. She unzipped her coat. Climbing was a workout. Every other tree she had to stop, catch her breath, and rest. Partway up the side of the valley, she spotted an oddly straight branch of deadfall among some of the brush stems. Nature seldom produces straight lines. She zigzag over to the bush to investigate. It was a rifle, hung up in the brush stems, muzzle down. I bet this was his, she thought. Higher up the slope from the rifle's bush were more broken branches. Wow, he fell a long way. Salvaging a stray rifle didn't seem as sacrilege. He certainly wasn't going to need it any longer. The rifle was heavy compared to her rifle. It was a bolt action, like Martin's neighbor Nick had. The stray rifle was painted in camo stripes of gray, sage, and tan. It had a scope and a sling. The paint was scraped off the wooden stock in a few places. She unloaded the rifle. It had four rounds in it. I don't know what I'm going to do with two rifles especially a heavy thing with just four bullets, she thought. It was just one more item to carry up the hill. Yet, it seemed too good to leave behind. She slung it over her other shoulder and resumed her climb. She was relieved to reach the top of the valley. Her muscles ached from the workout. Her arms trembled. Her stomach stabbed at her in protest. I need some food, she whispered to the jar in her pocket. She thought for a moment that she could eat the olives in the jar. That idea seemed sacrilege, too. It wouldn't buy much of a reprieve from the hunger, and it would ruin her memento. Studying the trees along the valley edge, she noticed many pines. They were too tall to be good for concealment or an extended rest. Pine trees, she thought. I could make pine needle tea. I made that back at Martin's house. She dismissed the thought as not very helpful. A belly full of water wouldn't provide the energy she needed. She squinted at the tree trunks. Hmm, but what about pine fries? She had helped Margaret process the slippery white pine bark that Martin and Andy brought home from the town farm. She knew how to cut and fry it, but not how it was actually harvested. Andy described what they did. That didn't seem too daunting. The key, however, was to dry roast or fry the pine bark to make it edible. Cooking meant fire. A fire could be a beacon at night, but could be hidden better during the day. She would need to set up a campsite in order to process and cook her pine fries by day. She could sleep in her shelter at night, but not cook. To the north of the valley stretched a level expanse of woods. A tarp tent would stand out as obviously foreign. 
Along the edge of the valley to her left stood a cluster of large rocks. She recalled sheltering beside the large rocks with Martin as they traveled north out of Boston. Upon closer examination, the cluster of rocks looked promising. A larger grouping on the left stood about four feet tall and had a flat vertical face. Roughly five feet away from that vertical face stood another cluster of boulders. From between the rocks, she had a commanding view of the valley below. I could scoop out the leaves between them, maybe lay some dead trees across the top and make a roof of pine branches. It seems a little silly making a camp after walking only a couple of miles, she said. She had perched her jar atop a low flat stone. But I need a safe place to cook my pine fries. I'll keep a sharp eye out, don't you worry. It felt good to take off her pack and lay down the dead hunter's rifle. Her ugly rifle would stay slung across her shoulder, just in case. Working between the stones was easier without the load on her back. She scooped out a layer of soggy leaves from between the rocks to make a fairly flat floor. She planned to place a layer of soft pine boughs on the cold ground. In the flat woods there was a bounty of fallen trees. Some were too large or rotten to be of use. Many were thinner. Within an hour she had a rustic debris roof over her Stone Age hut. She admired her work with her hands on her hips. Not as tidy as Mara's hut, but good enough for one night and more spacious. You wait here, she told her jar. I'm going to go gather some fuel and scout out some supper. A cluster of old pines looked like a good place to harvest pine bark. With her big knife, she scored two long curving cuts, an elongated football shape. It took both hands and many passes of the knife tip to cut through the tough outer bark. When the tip came out moist, she smiled. She knew she was close. After another quick scan of her surroundings, for a security check, she began pushing and prying at the lower end of the football. She managed to get the knife between the bark and the wood. She had to throw her weight into prying, but the football eventually let go with a long, slorking sound. Finally, she studied her prize. The white inner bark glistened with moisture. Pine bark seemed like an unlikely Pavlovian trigger, but she could feel her mouth starting to water. It was going to take more of such footballs to fill her stomach and provide some traveling food for the next day. With an idea of how hard she had to dig into the bark, the next tree seemed to yield its football less grudgingly. Maybe one more, she thought. That ought to make a panful. Her arms felt like they were made of lead. She leaned against one of the pines for a rest while she studied the adjacent pines to select her next donor. She heard a crack behind her. She froze. It was too small of a sound and too high up for a human. Her eyes tried to look behind her without turning her head, but she could see no movement. She turned her head slowly. There was another crack, followed by the sound of a small branch clattering to the forest floor. Twenty yards behind her, a fat gray squirrel jumped from one branch to another. His graceless landing sent another twig falling. Well, hello there. Susan slowly loosened her hunting stick from her belt. Maybe some special chicken for supper, too? She gently laid her bark footballs down and stood behind the big pine. 
the squirrel scrambled down the trunk of a tree and began bounding around on the ground in random hops. He dug in the leaves for a moment before bounding to another spot. Susan slowly raised her arm with the hunting stick over her shoulder. Every muscle was tense. He'll see me when I throw. I need to wait until he's looking the other way. The squirrel continued to grub around, apparently not finding anything worth eating. Eventually, he turned such that he sat with his back to Susan. She slowly moved her throwing stick arm to her side. Since he was on the ground, she would throw horizontally and aim ahead of the direction he was facing. He might hear the stick coming and try to flee. The squirrel dug intently in a patch of snow and found something to gnaw upon. While he sat engrossed in his findings, Susan reeled back. She launched her stick. It twirled toward the squirrel. He heard it at the last second and bounded forward. The stick smacked across his back and sent him skidding across the crusted snow. Susan ran as fast as she could. The squirrel thrashed and writhed on the snow like a fish at the bottom of a boat. He was stunned and confused, but still alive. Susan ran up to him. It looked like he was about to get his feet under him. Oh, no, you don't, she said. She hurriedly stepped on his head, pressing it through the thin snow, onto the frozen ground. You're not getting away. His hindquarters flipped and twisted in an attempt to get free. For a moment, Susan wondered what to do next. It would have been simpler if her stick had simply killed the squirrel outright, but it didn't. Now what? Shoot it? That was too noisy. Choke it to death with her hands? Oh, no way. Stab it? Yeah, too much blood. She decided to do what Owen did with the crows. Sorry, little guy. Nothing personal, but I need to eat. She closed her eyes and pressed her weight onto the ball of her foot. The squirrel thrashed more vigorously beneath her boot. She bounced slightly until she felt a dull crunch through the sole of her boot. She winced. The squirrel twitched twice, then went limp. Susan sighed. Harvesting special chicken was an unpleasant business, but it had to be done. She waited another minute to make sure the squirrel wasn't simply playing dead. When she removed her boot, blood trails from the mouth and nose confirmed that the squirrel wasn't playing dead. She picked it up by the tail. She carried the squirrel and her bark sections back to her rocks and logs hut. You'll have to sit over here. She moved her jar to a smaller rock. I need this rock for a table. She recalled Byron talking about how it was preferable to process an animal as soon as possible after killing it, and cooling the meat to avoid toughness. With the squirrel lying on its back across the rock, she took out her smaller, sharper knife. She blew out a heavy breath. Okay, you can do this, she told herself. She pinched up a fold of belly skin and made her first cut. She tried to replicate the cuts that Byron made, but the skin never seemed to cut in quite the direction she intended. On the brighter side, squirrel skin separated from the meat a good deal easier than it had with that raccoon. From her errant cuts, and sometimes pulling too hard, the skin was coming off in sections. It would not be a single tidy pelt. She smiled at the jar as she held a triangular patch of fur across the front of her coat. Good thing I wasn't planning to make a fur coat, eh? Not much for coverage. <laughs> what a hack job. I'll have to get better at this if I'm going to dress like Mara. Cutting off the feet produced the same unpleasant crunching sound. 
Using one of the outer bark patches as a cutting board, she used her big knife to take off the head. She stared at the little pink shape lying on the bark. Like the raccoon, it was surprising how small the actual animal was beneath all that fur. It was time to gut it. She made the belly cut, but couldn't bring herself to put her fingers inside the carcass. She knew she would have to eventually do it, but not today. Instead, she whittled the end of a stick into a narrow paddle. Pulling the guts out was a grim business, but better with a tool. She covered the little carcass with snow to cool it. From the guts, she separated the liver, kidneys, and heart. She had never been fond of liver, and had never eaten a kidney or a heart, but she was eating for energy, not for entertainment. While the fire developed in the hobo stove, she sliced the pine bark into narrow strips. The work was slower than she expected. She took a long look down the steep valley side to assure herself that no one was moving on the road or in the woods. It was afternoon, and she had not heard anything all day. No motors, no one walking, only her fat squirrel. There was some comfort in solitude. You might as well start cooking, she told the carcass, while I cut up more pine. She whittled the bark off of a stick and slipped the chest cavity over the end of the stick. The other end of the stick she propped up with small rocks so as to position the squirrel above the stove's flames. While the squirrel slowly roasted, she sliced up the rest of her pine fries. The fire in the stove hissed and flared periodically. Dripping fat? she wondered. She caught a drop in her shallow pan. It was fat. That got her wondering. When she skinned the squirrel, she didn't see much fat on the body, certainly not the wide yellow patches like the raccoon had. There were no globs of fat amid the squirrel guts either. Why did the squirrel look so fat when it was sitting on the ground? She examined the patches of skin that she had removed. They were thick, and the skin felt oily. Hmm, she muttered. Is this where your winter fat goes? She slowly heated the smaller patch of fur in her pan. Bet cooking fur looks really stupid, huh? She said to her jar. But look! She held the pan near the jar. It's making bacon grease. I don't have to dry roast my pine fries. Oh, that's pretty cool. The squirrel on a stick looked dark, with a crispy outer texture. She guessed that it was probably fully cooked. No part of it was more than a half-inch thick. While the meat cooled enough to eat, she stirred the bark strips in the oily pan. Between the smell of the roasted meat and the sound of sizzle from her pan, Pavlov was working overtime. Stirring in a little salt and pepper made her pine fries smell like fancy restaurant food. While the pine fries browned, she took a tentative bite of her squirrel on a stick. The taste of warm meat brushed aside hesitation. Within a few minutes, she had nibbled off every tiny shred of meat from the two rear legs and the back. The bare leg bones looked like tiny chicken wing bones. Oh, I should save some of this for tomorrow. She placed the squirrel back on its roasting stick. She divided her pine fries into two piles. The two footballs made more than she expected. One pile she placed into a folded cloth for packing into her bag. The other pile she crunched down quickly. They were brittle. The salt made her thirsty. A cup of pine needle tea satisfied her thirst, 
and seemed surprisingly filling. She leaned back against the tall rocks and let out a long, satisfied sigh. Not bad for forest food, she thought. Gonna have to try to do that again tomorrow, though. Not a lot of meat on a squirrel. Speaking of tomorrow, she mumbled. She pulled out her map. I-91 remained a barrier to cross. Doing so in Massachusetts seemed risky. Instead, she planned to travel due north, into Vermont, and then cross the highway. The Vermonters that she had known were generally laid back to the point of indifference. She hoped the Vermont troops had a similar lack of zeal. Staring out over the valley, sipping her pine-needle tea, she felt an odd mix of trepidation and exhilaration. She was alone, with no one to help her, with no one to help or decide which way to go. Yet, being alone, she felt like it would be easier to elude any pursuers. She could travel as fast as she wanted. Alone, she might be too insignificant of a target to bother with. The soldiers would probably start searching by driving on the roads. She would avoid the roads. The purple and orange of sunset reminded her of evening patrols at Martin's house. She wondered what was going on in Cheshire. Malcolm's truck should have arrived by now. Were the people jumping up and down with joy and relief? Did Martin smile when Malcolm delivered the can of Vienna sausages? Her eyes narrowed. Malcolm had better have delivered the Vienna sausages. If she found out that he hadn't, she would sucker-punch him in the gut. She mused over Charon's words about how quickly the truck food would run out, and how hard the work would be for the people of Cheshire. Charon's pessimism felt unfounded. He didn't know how stubborn and resourceful they were. They would survive the siege out of spite, if nothing else. As darkness fell, she huddled beneath her drone tarp. Only her eyes were exposed. The rolling landscape became a featureless band of gray beneath a darker sky. Susan finds herself alone in the woods, trying to survive. That used to be the go-to prepper plan, should the S hit the fan. The lone wolf prepper would shoulder his backpack full of survival gear, head deep into the woods, and live off the land while he waited for the collapse to play itself out. Famous survivalists like Les Stroud and Bear Grylls popularized the notion of surviving alone in the woods with bushcraft skills. Preppers who worried that an economic or societal collapse would make cities super dangerous rather understandably latched on to the notion of bugging out to the woods to escape the dangers and chaos. That notion probably sold millions of dollars worth of survival shovels, survival axes, and survival knives, etc. Over the years, the number of people concerned about the fragile nature of our modern system grew. I'd venture that most of them were not former SAS troopers turned professional TV survivalists, but were average suburbanites, office workers, moms, grandparents, etc. A lot of these newer preppers weren't so sure how good an idea it was to plan on bugging out to the woods. Prepping was morphing into more of a shelter-in-place plan. Susan's foray into the woods alone is kind of a glimpse of that bugged-out-to-the-woods lifestyle. The dead hunter in the snow, an example of the hazards. Susan manages pretty well, considering her city girl background. That was sort of the point of this chapter, showing that a former city girl could become much more capable, even if she wasn't ex-special forces. But 
While pine fries and roast squirrel were okay, you can tell that it would be a very Spartan life at best. I appreciate the feedback I've been getting from my patrons and Siege Club members to my recent posts. I always like hearing from you. If you'd like to become a patron or a Siege Club member, check out my Patreon page or my Buy Me a Coffee page. Links in the show notes. If you're not up for a membership, there's still a single cup of coffee as a show of support. Thanks for listening.